Mary, did you know that your baby boy one day walked on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy Come to make you new This child that you've delivered Soon deliver you Mary, did you know Your baby boy Gives sight to a blind man Mary, did you know Your baby boy Calm a storm with his hand. Did you know that your baby boy walked where angels trod? When you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. Mary, did you know? Mary, did you know? Blind will see, deaf will hear, and the dead will live again. The lame will leap, the dumb will speak, the praises of the Lamb. Your baby boy, Lord of all creation. Mary, did you know your baby boy one day ruled the nations? Did you know that your baby boy, heaven's perfect lamb, the sleeping child, your I don't think she was ignorant of anything. I believe she completely understood what was going on and what this child in her womb would be. Who and what he would be. Isaiah chapter 7 is what we're looking at today. By the way, verse 14. And that was our uh, warrior word uh, uh, memory verse. I want to ask anybody if they want to say it from memory because hopefully you got it open right in front of you. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. We are all familiar with signs. Different signs communicate different messages to us. They reveal a message. For instance, we know that a stop sign means, hopefully, to stop, right? To come to a complete, not a rolling stop, not a kind of a stop, but a complete and total stop. We know that the yield sign 
hopefully you know this, it means that you need to stop for oncoming or traffic that has the right of way. If there's no traffic, then you don't have to stop. You want to kind of slow down though. I always find that a, a very interesting sign, yield and humility have a lot in common. So every time you see that sign, think about humbling yourself, humbling yourself uh, to the right of way traffic. Somehow, this sign has been loosely interpreted though, right? <laughs> 55 means I might get away with 65. 75 somehow has come to mean get out of the way, I've got the pedal to the metal, I'm headed for glory land or something like that, right? I, listen, I'm not trying to bring any conviction on you about these two signs. If you like to speed, uh, then uh, have at it. Uh, that's between you and your relationship with the Lord. Uh, I know we've all been, or most of us, I should say, have probably been guilty of breaking the speed limit from time to time. Uh, I know I certainly have. Road signs uh, can be loosely interpreted, obviously. Uh, they're not supposed to be. They're supposed to be strictly and adhered to. Uh, but unlike text dot and uh, unlike these signs, which we perhaps choose to loosely interpret, God uses signs to communicate direct messages to humanity. And these signs are not up for loose interpretation. Thankfully, these signs have been designated for us in Scripture. There are signs in nature, for instance, when the leaves turn to different colors or fall off the tree altogether or the flowers begin to bud. We know that these are signs of changes of the season that nature gives us and that was set in motion by God when he spoke creation into order. Uh, there are also scriptural uh, signs given to us about the end times. We all know uh, wars, natural disasters, rumors of wars, these can be signs that the end is perhaps coming. Uh, we perhaps watched with some kind of anticipation this week as our president rightly uh, recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. When I found out about that, I thought, whew, I wonder what kind of end time implications this perhaps have. Anytime Israel is in the news, I think, man, this is, there's end time implications. There's all, all over that. These are signs that we are given. They're not up for loose interpretation. We may just not understand exactly what they mean. And then scripture also contains what I like to call the Christmas signs. I'm not talking about the decorations that go up right around September. I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about the scriptural signs that we were given, the Old Testament prophecy that pointed toward this coming of Jesus Christ. One of which is given to us here, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Would you just look at that scripture with me? And then we'll turn and talk about it. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive a, and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Let's pause a moment for prayer, will we? Father, thank you for this scripture. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence in this place. Father, I thank you for these sweet people that are here this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you would impact each and every one of us. Lord, that you would change us from the inside out through your scripture and through your spirit. Lord, I believe all of us have some place in our lives that we need to grow. Father, I pray that you would do that for us this morning. In faith, I ask for this to be done. It's in your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, I want to kind of set the scene for you here in Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, I don't want to completely take this scripture out of context, 
what is happening here is uh, there's uh, some action going on between the north and south kingdoms of Israel. They're separated at this point in history. The king of the southern kingdom, or Judah, is a guy named Ahaz. And he is faced with a difficult decision. The nation of Assyria, which has joined forces with the northern kingdom of Israel, also called Ephraim sometimes, later in history we uh, designated as Samaria, but they are threatening to attack Judah with their joined forces unless Ahaz decides to join with them. They want him to join forces with Assyria and the northern kingdom. That God promises Ahaz that, that he's going to take care of these two kings, that he's take care of these two nations and wipe them out, and that he will not let the southern kingdom come to ruin. Of course, Ahaz really needs to remember the promise that God had made to David, that his seed would always sit on the throne and that uh, there would be an internal seed coming uh, someday down the line. But Ahaz has pretty much made up his mind, I believe. He's made up his, his mind to align with Assyria, with the northern kingdom. Isaiah has come, the, the prophet has come to assure Ahaz of God's rescue and tells Ahaz, God wants you to ask for a sign of his coming rescue. But Ahaz basically says, no thanks. In verse 12, actually, he gives a very spiritual response. But you know, spiritual responses don't always uh, reflect a spiritual growth in our heart. What is actually going on is Ahaz is feigning humility. In verse 12, he says, uh, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. There's some truth in there. You shouldn't test the Lord. But when the Lord tells you to ask for something... You should ask for it. Well, Isaiah, being the wise prophet that he is, he rebukes Ahaz in verse 13 and tells him, it's not enough that you weary men. In other words, you're wearying me, the prophet. I'm just a mere man. But will you ask also weary the Lord himself? There in verse 13. Uh, will you also weary God? And so he says, uh, he says to him, basically, I'm rebuking you. You shouldn't have done this. And here's your sign anyway, and there we are at verse 14. Now, this was spoken and written about 2,500 years ago, and I'm completely rounding to the nearest uh, 500 mark there. It was spoken and written about 2,500 years ago. It was fulfilled a little over 2,000 years ago when Christ came and was born in that manger. And I get that. It, it's, uh, we look at this verse, verse 14, and if we have any kind of church background, we've probably heard this verse. Maybe you've got it printed all over decorations in your house. You read this verse and you're like, yeah, okay, it's Christ. I get that. I understand that. And it should make us very, very grateful that we live on this side of Jesus Christ. Because we've experienced all of this. We've seen all of the history. We know the story, the, the true stories. And we know Jesus is the fulfillment of this verse in Isaiah chapter 7, 14. But if you had lived on this side of Jesus, that 500 years or so between when this was written and spoken and when Jesus shows up on the scene and even a little bit after that in history, you might have read verse 14 and say, what? That is just a really strange thing for Isaiah to say. And What does it have to do with Ahaz facing this war? And it wasn't that Judah would find favor. That's, that, that's not what's being revealed here. And that's what we need to understand is, remember, this is a sign 
of a revelation of a message from God. So what is the revelation? What is the, what is the message that God is giving to Ahaz through Isaiah that God is giving to us even today? It, 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 well, again, it wasn't that Ahaz was necessarily going to win the war. It wasn't that Judah would find favor with God and become the dominant nation they longed to be. What is the sign revealing? Well, the first thing I want to tell you that it's revealing is this. God is coming in the flesh. That's the first thing that this is revealing. And it's revealed in this little statement where he says, the virgin shall conceive. There's going to be a virgin birth. That's a strange thing, again, for us to understand. And to make matters worse, this word in the Hebrew language has, for centuries and centuries, given people heartburn. There's a few reasons why this word that we translate here in the English, virgin, has given us heartburn through the years. First, it's because in the original Hebrew, this word is not actually translated as what we understand a virgin to be. A virgin is a woman who's never been with a man in the biblical sense, keeping it PG as possible. But it refers instead, this Hebrew word refers to a young, unmarried woman. So why did they not use a word that means virgin? Because in the Hebrew culture, there is a basic assumption that an unmarried young woman would be physically pure. This word only gives us heartburn because of the culture and the times that we live in. We live in a day and time where chastity is treated loosely and irreverently. And in those times, the only unmarried young women who were not chaste were prostitutes. That gives us heartburn. Well, it doesn't say virgin. It says young unmarried woman. How do we know she was a virgin? That was their culture. It was an assumption. Though we could make that same assumption today. I will not spend too much time on that. <laughs> The second reason this word gives us heartburn is because the Hebrew language does not easily translate to English. Some of the words that we have translated through the years have had to be changed because there were no words in the English language that related when, this transla when the English translation first came out. you got to understand, the English language did not truly come onto the scene until about 500 A.D., and what was going on in 500 A.D. is nothing like going on in 2017 A.D. You also have to remember that the English, uh, first English translation of the Bible was written around in the 1500s. 1500s. Whereas the Hebrew language has been around since about 3000 B.C. or so. Pretty good while. We're talking about a great time span in languages. And then remember, this particular scripture we're looking at in the original Hebrew was written around 2,500 years ago. Think about that for a second. The words that we use today, some of them did not even exist 10 years ago. Think about how language has changed over 2,500 years ago. Did you know that in the original King James translation in Isaiah, actually, there is a word that they translated to dragon? Because they didn't have the word dinosaur. It didn't exist in the English language when the King James Version first came out. That's what I'm talking about. Hebrew language doesn't necessarily translate to English so easily. So the second reason I say this has given us heartburn is because there's some language issues here that we don't completely understand. Did you know in the Old Testament there's a few instances where the Scripture says God actually hates humanity? Now, that won't preach real well. 
And you won't hear me speaking in a sermon that says God hates humanity. Because I don't think we completely understand the language that is being translated there. And that's one of those things that when we get to heaven, we'll say, God, you said that you love the world. Could you explain those scriptures to me real quick? You know, anybody got those questions that you're, you can't wait to see God so you can say, although, you know, maybe when we get to heaven, we won't care about those questions anymore. I'm not sure. Finally, this gives us heartburn because it requires faith. A virgin birth requires a great amount of faith. Man says, well, this is how a baby is formed. The sign requires in believing in the miraculous workings of God and that he would break the rules he himself had set in motion at creation. But God has certainly shown his ability and willingness to break his own natural law. He has broken the law of the revolving or the rotating earth, right? He stopped the earth for one full day so Joshua could win a war. He, uh, he could certainly do away with the law of gravity as we read about Jesus ascending up into heaven. So God is able and certainly willing to break his own natural laws for his glory. And often he does that for our own good. But again, many of the truths of God throughout scripture, don't they require faith? Not necessarily understanding. There's a big difference between my ability to understand and my ability to believe. There are some things that I just say, I don't understand. I believe you anyway, Lord. I don't have to understand in order to say, believe. That's not a blind faith, but it's a trusting faith that says, I don't have to understand everything. I'll just trust the one who says this is how it is. And this is difficult for us humans because we have to have an answer for everything. We need to just turn off that part of ourselves sometimes and say, you know what, I'm just going to, I don't understand, I'm just going to trust the one who says this. So why do we have this virgin birth? Well, there's some reasons we need to understand why this is so important, this virgin birth is so important. One of the reasons is this, we are naturally sinful. We are inherently, we use a word that says inherited sin or original sin. We, we talk about how our sin nature was passed down through Adam, and that every single one of us are born with this sin nature. Nobody had to teach me how to lie. Nobody had to teach me how to rebel against my parents' wishes. Nobody had to tell me to or teach me how to disobey. It came naturally. And so what had to happen was, in some way, God had to circumvent this natural passing down of sinfulness. In that, we must remember the goal of Jesus Christ. He was born, he was sent to be the Passover lamb for humanity. That being said, he had to be perfect, sinless, without flaw, and without a sin nature. Uh, in that, he was crucified. He took on himself the sin punishment that we all deserve. He could not be born in this inherited sin that we are all born with. He must be pure from the moment of conception and then his own birth. Through the virgin birth, Jesus somehow circumvents this sin nature that you and I are born with. Now hear me loud and clear, especially you ladies. I am not saying that the sin nature comes from Adam or from the man, right? Because you, your, your natural inclination is, well, a woman was involved or there just wasn't a man involved. Jesus was born without a sin nature. Therefore, the sin nature comes from man. Now listen, there's some theology that tries to teach that. And they usually, they use some, there's a, there's a handful of scriptures they use to try to teach that, but they're horribly applied scriptures. This is a bad teaching. 
Let me tell you why it's a bad teaching. Because the moment you say that because Jesus was only in Mary and there was no part of Joseph as in Jesus, then you start believing the teaching that ladies have no sin nature. Therefore, if they could remain perfect without sin, they would have no need for Jesus. Now men, you can tell your wife that all you want. And score some points, sweetheart. You don't have a sin nature. <laughs> You're absolutely perfect in every single way. But be it known that Scripture doesn't teach that, and that's not what this is teaching either. We all have a sin nature, including our lovely ladies, and I'm not adding any kind of emphasis to that, that ladies have a sin nature too, just stating the facts. The concept of the virgin birth actually bypasses the sin nature from both parents, and we must see Mary as simply a vessel. She is the mother of Jesus. She was physically nurturing to the physical body of Jesus. But I don't believe there was any DNA passed on from Mary. I don't think, I, I, don't, I believe she conceived this child. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit conceived it in Mary. And she was like a cup carrying this holy juice, if you will, of God in her. She was simply the vessel that carried the birth of Jesus to humanity. The conception was holy, in, in, in other words, exclusively by the miraculous workings of the Holy Spirit. He spoke the world into existence. Forming a child in the womb of a woman would not be a problem for him at all. The virgin birth is also important because this baby was to be different. Not only was this baby was to be with not only was this baby to be without a sin nature, but this baby was to be fully God and fully man. Not 70% God and 30% man, not mostly man and a little bit of God, not man with the seasoning of God, but fully God and fully man. He was God taking on the form of a servant, that is, humanity. We call this, big fancy word, incarnation, meaning God becoming flesh. This fulfills that the Messiah would experience everything that we humanly experience from the cradle, from the womb, actually, to the grave. The virgin birth is so important to our faith. It's not just something we throw in there uh, to make our faith sound funny. It's the concept that is difficult to fully comprehend. And that's okay to have a concept from God that is, fully, uh, that is not fully able to be comprehended. The fact is, is that it is important to our faith. Uh, and so we... We, uh, we understand how this virgin birth, this makes God fully human and fully God. God visiting humanity in their form, in the human form, is not a foreign concept, though. It's not necessarily unique. Uh, there are many false religions that teach of their God coming in a human form to visit humanity. Many of these are what we consider to be Eastern or mystical religions, and many of them are contemporary with Judaism and Christianity. So when this prophecy was made and, and that it was taught, it wasn't really unique to say that the God of the Jews would make a visit to the Jews. Here is what is unique, though. That this God would be born through human means and human flesh and live a human life. That is what is unique. 
You see, the false religions present their gods making a visit to humanity in the form of a human spirit. Much like the Old Testament visitations from an angel, like, you know, when the angel showed up and, and uh, told Joseph or Joshua uh, how to attack Jericho. That was an angelic visit. He was in the form of a human, but it, it wasn't in the human flesh like we understand that Jesus showed up. What makes Christianity unique is the incarnation of, Christ, of Jesus Christ. The fact that he was formed in human flesh and experienced every human thing that we experience from birth to death. That is what is unique. Judaism looked forward to this long-awaited visit from their God that would come in the form of human flesh. He would be a descendant of King David. And the promise was that this descendant of King David would reign forever. And this simple little Hebrew word in Isaiah 7.14 carried much weight in it. Because it does not say that God would be near us or for us or among us, but that God would be with us and would come from a virgin. Only Christianity teaches of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Why do I say Christianity? Because the Jews are still looking for this. They do not believe that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the Isaiah 7.14 prophecy or any of the other Old Testament fulfillment or other, all the other Old Testament prophecies. They don't believe that God himself came in the form of Jesus Christ. And so that is why we are asked by God to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We're not praying for their peace from the Palestinians or the Hamaras. We are asking, we are being asked by God to pray for their spiritual peace because they are right now at war with God because they have not accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so God is coming in the flesh. He will be born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And because He is coming, then we can assert the second very important message from God, what this little prophecy reveals. Not only that there's going to be God coming in the flesh, but what does He say? He will be called Emmanuel, God with us. The sign reveals that God is with us. God is with us. And that is found in the name Emmanuel, which literally translates God with us. Now, how do we know this if we don't speak Hebrew and we have all of these issues with the Hebrew language that I just talked about a second ago when I was talking about that word virgin? This is why we have to read the Bible in light of the Bible. In other words, the very best commentary you can ever find on Holy Scripture is Holy Scripture. Do me a favor and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And we won't go back and forth. All right, we're, we're turning there for good. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 22 through 23. I read a bit of that during the children's sermon. And this is part of that message to Joseph. Or, or after this message to Joseph from the, from, uh, from the angel in verse 22 the message is over. Matthew is saying what is, what is going on is to fulfill Old Testament Scripture. Look at verse 22 and 23 with me. It says, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Isaiah doesn't translate what that Hebrew word Emmanuel means, but Matthew does. Now what's really interesting is that when Matthew quotes this in chapter 1, verse 22 through 23, 
He doesn't quote from a Hebrew text. He quotes what's called the Septuagint. Real quick, long story short, I don't want to bore you with all the details, but it's really very interesting. So Alexander the Great, this Greek ruler, when he was taking over the world, what he would do is not only would he take over countries, but he would take over cultures. And he would take their great writings and he would have them translated into the Greek language. He did this with the Hebrew culture. He took their Bible, what we call the Old Testament, their, old, their Hebrew writings, and he translated them into the Greek. We call this the Septuagint. And this was done about two to three hundred years after Isaiah makes this prophecy. That makes it kind of contemporary. Now, we can't remember what was going on 1,500 years ago, but, you know, we can kind of remember what was going on 200 years ago, can't we? I mean, we know that, that, the, uh, that the American nation was proclaiming its liberty, and we know the Declaration, and we have some of those writings from 200 years ago. That makes it really contemporary that the Septuagint, which was a translation of that Hebrew text, and when, by the way, when he quotes from the Septuagint, and he uses the Greek word for virgin, he doesn't use an unambiguous word. In other words, he uses a word that means a woman that's never laid with a man in the biblical sense. That tells me that the Greek translators that were translating the Hebrew text 200 years after Isaiah understood what Isaiah was designating and used, used the Greek word that meant virgin. And that's what Matthew uses as well here in chapter 1, verse 22 and verse 23. And then he uses this word Emmanuel and he gives us this translation of what Emmanuel means, God with us. And if anything gets my fire going, it is considering this truth, God with us. Let me ask you, what do you really marvel at? What do you spend your time thinking upon? This is huge, God with us. It's such an important thought that I'm not sure we can fully grasp or appreciate it in one sermon. I want to just give you some thoughts about this phrase, God with us. We could sum it up simply and talk about God's omnipresence, the fact that He is in all places at all times, that He is always there. But would that really give us the full appreciation of what is meant in this phrase, God with us? Instead, I want to just simply consider each word in this phrase, God with us. And perhaps after this morning, during this Christmas season, you will consider this phrase, God with us. And the beauty and, of this idea, God is with us. And marvel at that powerful truth, God is with us. That first word, God, the one who speaks everything into creation, the one who continues creation on its course, the one who exists before and above all time. He was there when the world obviously was spoken into creation. He was the one who was doing the speaking. He was there when Daniel was put into the lion's den. He was there when Christ was put into the tomb. He was there even when you were born. God is always there. This is the same God that appeared to Moses in a burning bush. And Moses was so at awe that he, did, he, he dared not go near that burning bush. He kept back, is what the scripture says. The same God who split the Red Sea, who stopped the rotation of the earth, I was talking about a second ago, so that Joshua could win that war. The stories, the good intended for humanity, the miracles. Consider the awesome, miraculous power and creativity 
for Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, to be born into this world. I mean, that, that's a miraculous occurrence. Flesh, by the way, you think about that for a second. God told Moses, no man can look on me and survive. And yet here God is somehow contained in the flesh of man. That, that, maybe I'm simple-minded. That just blows my mind, though. I, I love just marveling at that idea. This is God who could not be seen by human flesh, but is in, somehow contained in human flesh. Had God come in the form of some new creature that was perfect and without sin, we might be prone to believe it. But what is awesome about Him coming in the form of Jesus is that He chooses a fallen and sinful creature, mankind. The divine nature taking the form of something that is so corrupt so that through his own flesh he could give a final condemnation to the sin of flesh and offer salvation to all those who suffer from the corruption of sin. This is God. This is God. And consider the good will this is to man. God coming in the flesh. We hear the angels make this declaration to the shepherds. Peace. Goodwill towards all men. What does that mean, though? That God has come in the form of man surely means that his will is not to annihilate man, but to save man. Why would he come in the form of something he planned to let cease to exist? The fact that he came in the form of us. This is God. This is God. This is God with us, that we might be saved. The second word in that phrase, with, God with us. We understand in the, in the English language this word is a preposition. In our language it would refer to accompaniment, to be alongside with someone else. I'm going with you to the store. But God, simply along for the ride of our lives? That doesn't sound accurate. That doesn't sound like God being with us. That's surely not what is meant. We were just talking about His awesome power. This sets aside the view that God created everything and then took a step back and said, all right, boys, have at it. Enjoy the world. I'll be back in a few thousand years. That's not what God did. But God is with us. In the Greek language, this word with would reflect not just to be in the company of, but instead sharing life with, being with someone or something. It, it, it's a rivet of relationship. You know what a rivet is, right? A nut and bolt can be easily removed. This is riveted in with us. God is with us. It means to have a common bond or relationship. God with us means that He is in our midst, involved in our lives, giving directions to our lives. The Bible says that He knows the number of hairs on our heads. I don't know anybody who knows me that well. God with us means He knows us. He is with us. Thinking about this Christmas story, and we see that God has come near to us again in the form of humanity. Literally, God has taken our nature on bones, flesh, hair, for, uh, uh, blood, literally everything that makes us human. God had taken that form. Sometimes we joke, was Jesus possibly gassy? I don't see why not. He was fully human. I'm not trying to be irreverent. Did God or did Jesus have a hangnail from time to time? I don't see why not. He was fully human. I'm not trying to be irreverent. I'm trying for us to capture 
what this God with us really means. This is why we can say he knows us because he was one of us for a little while. It's possible. Also consider the spiritual challenges. Not only did Jesus perhaps have the physical challenges, but also the physical challenges. Did he lose a loved one? No doubt. He probably went through the same grief that we go through when we lose a loved one. Did he deal with anxiety over an issue? Absolutely. Look at his prayer in the garden as the Bible says that he sweat drops of blood because of the stress, because of the anxiety that he was feeling. Did he face temptation to sin? No doubt. Read Matthew chapter 4. We're told that he faced every temptation known to man. The Bible teaches us that he did this, and he did so without sin. Have you ever truly marveled at how God placed himself in our shoes? We marvel at many things, don't we? And we find things to marvel at. We marveled this past November as the Astros won the World Series. I marvel at the fact that my my alum, uh, my, my alma mater is going back to the national championship, the only football program in the state of Texas, by the way, to go to the national championship in the last several years. UMHB, go Crusaders. Okay. But is this really worthy of us marveling over, to be filled with wonder and awe? What do you marvel in? I hope during this season of Christmas you'll spend a few moments and marvel God is with us and was with us when he sent his son. Not for a vacation and see the sights on earth, but as a way of saying to humanity, I am with you and I am for you and I love you. Final word in this scripture, us. When I consider this word, I can't help but to think about that scripture in Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. God is not in heaven standing above us without sympathy, but through the person and Son of God, Jesus Christ, He has sympathy on us regarding our weaknesses. My dad used to have a funny saying about sympathy. If you want it, look it up in the dictionary. But God has sympathy for you and for me. The Bible says that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father this very moment praying for you and for you for this guy and for you and you, he is interceding, praying for us night and day. That's something I believe in and I hope in and I am so thankful for. Is there any doubt that God is for us? Then put that out of your mind as you consider the truth of Scripture. God sent his son because he loved the world that much. And God being with us did not end when Jesus ascended into heaven. But when he went... The Bible tells us that God sent the Holy Spirit to live within us. He is there to guide us, to convict us, to rebuke us, to encourage us, to comfort us. He is the counselor. He is the comforter. He is the helper. And He is in us. God did that so that God would be with us. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee of salvation. He is our down payment, if you will, of the promise of heaven, of the promise of eternal life and of the promise of being co-heirs with Jesus Christ, of untold rewards in heaven. I don't even know what all that means, but that's okay. You see, there's some presents down there under the Christmas tree with my name on it. I don't know what's in that present, but I've got no doubt that they are good gifts 
not because of what's in them, but because of who is the giver of the gift. God is with us. He promises us through this gift of the Holy Spirit. So God is in all places at all times. But He is with us in our lives every moment. He is speaking to us. He is leading us. And the Bible even says that the Holy Spirit Himself is praying for us when we don't know how to pray. That's God with us. However, as wonderful as this promise is, as this sign is that God is with us, there is an opposing and important truth to this sign and its revelation. God is not with you if you are not saved. God is not with you if you are not saved. It's real popular for us to throw around the platitude that God is always with us and He is a help to those in need. And this is true, but it is only true for His people. Now certainly, God gives good things to all people, whether they are saved or lost. He lets it rain on the just and the unjust. But He is not present in the lives of the lost. The promise of the Holy Spirit is a promise for those who are born again. And I know that sounds harsh, but this is reality. We need to stop pandering this idea that God is buddies with humanity. He is a just and righteous God who holds out His love to humanity in the form of His crucified and resurrected Son, Jesus Christ. But for all those who reject Christ in the here and now, they are at war with God and God is no friend to them. He is not Emmanuel for them. He is God, the righteous and the wrathful. And if they continue to reject His loving and patient call to salvation, they will face His final judgment with a sift and direct sentence of damnation in hell. I know you're thinking, where did this come from? But this is the beautiful truth of God is with us. You need to receive Him as your Lord and Savior. The merriest Christmas present I could give you is the truth of the gospel and an urging and a plea to receive the truth of the gospel. The Christmas message is really quite simple. Man needed a way of salvation. God sent His Son to give us that, that way of salvation. Believe in the Son and you will be saved. Reject Him and you will be lost forever and ever. That's the simple message of the gospel. And this is why, Christian, you and I must be all the more serious regarding our calling to spread this message of the gospel, to preach the good news. When you go out into those stores and people say, don't you just love Christmas? And you say, yes, it's a reminder that God is with me. And he loves me. He's for me. It's a reminder of the sweet gospel of Christmas, the good news of Christmas. That we needed a way of salvation, and God sent it. God is with us. Is God with you this morning? Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us let this message sink in. That you are with us. and Just that we would marvel at this truth. This absolute truth that you are with us. You are for us. But also this truth that you are not with those who continue to reject Jesus Christ. And Lord, if we are here this morning and if we've been one of those that have rejected Christ, may we just humble ourselves and come to you in salvation. Meaning, Lord, that we admit that we are sinners. But we believe that you are the only Son of God and we confess you as our Lord and Savior. That we might be saved today. And Lord, if there 
for those Christians that are here this morning, that they would pray during this time, and they would seek opportunity to share the gospel message for those they come into contact, to make disciples of those that are in their life, maybe living in their very house, under their very roof, or maybe just next door, just looking for opportunities to share this good news. God with us, let me tell you what that means. Father, would you move in us, and may we move back to you in obedience this morning. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.